Welcome to the Civil Squared Podcast, where we explore civil discourse and the free exchange of ideas. And now your host of the show, Dr. Jennifer K. Thompson. Hi there, and thanks for joining us. Today we're talking to Pamela Pareski, who is a psychologist, and we are excited that she's made time for us because she is a very busy woman. In addition to being a visiting lecturer at the University of Chicago, Pamela is also the director of the Aspen Center for Human Development, and she's a senior scholar at the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, or FIRE. She was very involved in the New York Times bestseller, The Coddling of the American Mind, written by Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt. She served as the in-house editor and primary researcher for that project. Today, we're talking about something Pamela is very passionate about, the habits of a free mind. We're talking about what those are, how to develop them, and why they're especially relevant in the time of COVID-19 and the protesting around racial justice. I hope you enjoy it. Let's start there, because I think that's really important that we establish what are the habits of a free mind? Oh, that's great. Now, that piece was ARC Digital. Um, and I was really pleased that they reached out to me about that. Um, and we talked about, Bradley Campbell and I talked about some of the same things in a piece that we wrote for the New York Times about using those same habits in how, uh, in finding solutions to the COVID crisis. Um, mainly we see, and Bradley and I aren't the only social scientists who've been looking at this, Yasha Monk, um, Jonathan Haidt, and of course, Greg Lukianoff, um, Nicholas Christakis, there are like all kinds of social scientists and lawyers and Nadine Strassen and um, we're, there's a whole sort of uh, group of people who are becoming increasingly concerned about our inability to have productive disagreements with ideological opponents. Um, and that becomes uh, more and more of, a, of an issue as problems become more and more complex. Um, we really need to be able to um, engage with our ideological opponents in ways in which we get the best thinking from them and they get the best thinking from us so that we can, you know, in Judaism, there's this, this concept called machloket, I can't even pronounce it, machloket l'shem shemayim, which is arguing for the sake of heaven. And the the fundamental premise of that is that your um, your opponent, the person that you are having a dialogue with, who disagrees with you, um, first and foremost is a human being. And like, if we just started there, we would have, we would improve our conversations. That's not even a place where we are now. If, if somebody disagrees with something that someone feels very, very strongly about, especially something in the moral realm, it's um, grounds for sort of immediate um, vilification and even dehumanization. So that's fundamental number one in habits of a free mind is um, to have compassion for the people that you disagree with, um, to not dehumanize. You mentioned that it is something that has existed for a long time, the idea of this, of looking at people as human beings. So the, and actually, if it's okay, I'd just love to read the piece, a piece out of the ARC Digital piece. 
You say this requires habits of mind that in recent times we have practiced too seldom and valued too little. Approaching dissenters' views with curiosity, critical thinking, intellectual humility, and a willingness to be wrong, using the principle of charity when evaluating ideological opponents' ideas, thoroughly considering views before rejecting them, refusing to assign malign intentions to those whose ideas we dislike, accepting that for some problems there are no risk-free solutions, and welcoming dissent and disagreement as necessary to a functioning liberal democracy. You say we've used it too little, especially in recent times, but even the history of these concerns, as you just described them, seems to me to be a human condition, right? This is a problem we all have as human beings that we're sort of given to that kind of uncharitable interpretation. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, also we were not, uh, we're accustomed to thinking in terms of very small groups of people. And so it's easy to delineate the group that's us and the group that's them. And them are always suspect and um, probably enemies, probably somebody to fear. Um, and even the terminology, the language throughout time, the, the names that we have given our tribes, our, our groups of people um, have meant people. And so that's how we see what a human being is, is our group are people and the others are not fully people. And so that's sort of like all throughout time, that's sort of the way that we've been, um, uh, I don't know, designed is maybe the wrong way to put it, but we fundamentally think this way. We think in terms of us and them, and it takes some real effort to expand the way that we think about who counts as us. And it's not, it's not just that it's just easy. It's comforting, right, to think of one another as the us's and those people over there. I mean, there's some, I don't know, I guess comfort in that for people. So it takes exercise. It takes some kind of, of work to get those habits. What kind of work do you have to do to get the habits of a free mind? Well, the, the first thing that is helpful is a sort of um, compassion meditation where you consider the ways in which you think about the people that you love and how you wish no suffering for them. And then the people you like, and you wish no suffering for them. And then the people you know, who you have no sort of attachment to. And of course you wish no suffering for them. Then you have to start thinking about, can you wish for no suffering for the people you dislike? Can you wish for no suffering for the people you revile? That's hard. It's sort of, it's just much more um, a, a sort of default mechanism to wish suffering on people we hate. And so if we can start by, I mean, start is a, a hard, <laughs> hard way to say it. This, this is very hard. So starting is not exactly the right way to put it, but make an effort to consider that if we can avoid wanting harm to come to people because we dislike them or because we think that they are harmful, if we can avoid wishing harm on them, if we can avoid wanting them to suffer, then as we get closer and closer to the people that we like and love, we have a much better 
ability to connect with them in a very human way. So those people, most of the people that we encounter in daily life are not people we absolutely revile. Um, they're people that we disagree with in some way. Uh, if they're not the people we love and like, they're people we don't know well and we may disagree with. We may agree with them and, and then it's easy to you know, not wish them harm. But, but the majority of the people that we encounter are not abhorrent, um, you know, horrific human beings. They're, they're just people who disagree. And they don't probably want us to suffer either. There's just a place where we get, where we forget that the people who uh, disagree with us on, on matters of fundamental importance to us are, are just as, one of the ways that I put it is that they're just as committed to a more perfect union as we are. They just see things differently. And if we don't allow ourselves the value of their perspective, then we're missing a huge amount of information that could be really helpful in solving problems. I think you said a couple of things there that are really important. One of which is, so if somebody's listening to this and they think everything you just described about developing the habits of a free mind sounds really good, but when it, the theory meets the practice of it, it's really hard for me, right? So they can think, you know, they can feel somewhat better about the fact that it's not unnatural or crazy when you hear a point of view you disagree strongly with to have sort of an immediate reaction of that's just wrong and that person's wrong. I mean, that's, that's part of the way we are. Um, two, it's not easy to get past that immediate reaction. It requires actual conscientious work to do it. Yep. And, and one of the methods for doing that uh, another, you know, in addition to the compassion piece is curiosity, is to approach that person with a, a very deep level of curiosity. And, and if, so if you start with the compassion piece and you start with an assumption that this person is not evil, this person is not crazy, this person is not ignorant, and this person is not stupid, right? So imagine what someone who is intelligent, informed, and, you know, sane, and a, and a decent person, how could that person come to this very wrong conclusion? You don't even have to, at the beginning, be open-minded about whether they're wrong. You know, just assume they're wrong. And now be curious about how that person, given that they have those qualities, could come to this very wrong conclusion. That gives you a very different way of thinking about how to be curious about what that person uh, thinks and believes than if you thought, well, I'm curious to know how crazy this person is, or I'm curious about what they don't understand, or I'm curious about whether they have the capacity to even you know, come to the right conclusion if they had all the information. You know, those are the kinds of things where we, we sort of tend to think that way. We sort of tend to think only somebody who is not a decent person or only somebody who doesn't have all the information or only somebody who's not right you know so if we start from an assumption that that person is as smart as informed and as sane as we are and as decent a human being then the kind of curiosity that we have about how they came to that conclusion is completely different 
even without being open-minded about whether they might have a point. Just be curious about how they could come to such a wrong conclusion. And that actually involves having some um, ability to put yourself in their shoes. So, and that's a, like a, an interesting expression that we've used for, you know, such a long time, put yourself in someone else's shoes. What does that really mean? It means to stand where they're standing so that you can see what they're seeing. Because if you think about it, a perspective is really what you can see from where you're standing. You can't see what's behind you if you're standing someplace and you can only see in the direction that you're looking. You would have to stand in a different way to see what's behind you. And if someone else is standing in a different place and looking at you, they have a different perspective than the perspective you have looking at them. So you would have to move over to their position and stand where they're standing, another way of saying, you know, put yourself in their shoes, stand where they're standing in order to see what they're seeing. And then you're gonna see something different than what you could see from your position. People often think that your perspective is something um, that gives you the position that you take. You know, you have a a perspective that's based on your education, your knowledge, your research, you know, all of these things go into your perspective and then you take a position on something. But I think it might be more accurate to say that we take a position and that gives us our perspective. Mm -hmm. We have to sort of mentally loosen ourselves from that position in order to see a different perspective. That's, that's sort of that practice of curiosity. But you don't have to become a superhuman who has no strong feelings about things. You don't have to abandon your point of view, your changing perspective. And if you think about it, literally, that kind of helps. And so that all sounds very plausible, something that people can do. It'll take work. It seems to me that there are so many things that work against that practice for us in modern life. Social media. That's, what, uh, that's the number one that I would say. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I'll tell you a story about um, when we started recently advertising on Facebook, we, we target the advertising, but what we're really trying to do is bring in people who are interested in civil conversation and very much what you described, the habits of a free mind, I think. We didn't, we didn't describe it that way, but that's, that's very fitting for the way we've been thinking about it. And because we didn't take a particular position in the advertising, we got people who called us uh, liberal morons, Nazis, um, right-wingers, you know, dark money people, whatever. I mean, it was all over the place. That was the thing that surprised me about it was that there was this immediate kind of rush to judging who we were and imputing certain things to us because we didn't take a specific position. And I imagine that's true for social media, the rate we get information, but not just that, what we're getting for news and everything else. Um, you know, how do, we, how do we kind of work against this fire hose of information in big pieces, little pieces, all over, very strongly worded, and continue to try and develop those habits that you're describing. Yeah, it's really interesting. You're making me think of some work that Paul Bloom and one of his graduate students have done um, in looking at what they call harmless torturers. You know, so each of us has a very important part to play on social media 
And we don't think that we're important because we're just one drop in an ocean, right? But it takes a lot of drops to make an ocean on social media. And each one of us that, that makes a commitment to not attacking people on social media, to not impugning motives or assuming intentions, um, to not humiliating people or shaming them or calling them out, um, but to committing to a, a kind of um, discourse of respect and curiosity makes a huge difference. Um, you know, one, one thing that happens is that the most angry and outraged voices are the loudest, but they're not the majority, but they're also very vindictive and punitive. And the majority then become afraid of being the target of an attack and either stay silent or join in that kind of, you know, canceling or mobbing behavior. Um, We saw this just recently I mean, we see this all over. We've seen it recently in lots of different um, domains. But even just today, a, um, a letter on Harper's was released with 150 uh, journalists and social scientists and other thinkers, lawyers, um, <clears throat> who all um, signed their names to a letter calling for a return to a sort of liberal discourse and the ideals of liberal democracy and not canceling, silencing, deplatforming, humiliating, shaming, firing, you know, all of these things that we're seeing, but to allow for dissent. Allowing for dissent is a fundamental premise of a democracy. And even appreciating it is necessary. If we if we end up with an ideological monoculture, all is lost. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um even even if it's the one we like, you know, it's it's not. It's almost worse if it's the one we like because it's never subjected to any kind of critical. No stress testing. No right, exactly. So anyway, the um, the thing about social media too is that it is a really um, uh, it's an important sort of um, vehicle for spreading and magnifying things right? Whatever you seed it with, it will spread. And as it spreads, it will magnify. So right now, it has been seeded with this very negative, vitriolic, uh, you know, attempts to humiliate and shame. And, uh, and, and even just the, the stuff that, that you came across, um, where one of the things that happens is that when we get emotionally activated, our critical thinking skills get diminished. And so people, I think, um, a lot of people assume that, that when people make what appear to be ridiculous claims, like what the claims that people made about your um, Facebook post because you didn't take a position. So making a claim that you're a Nazi is ridiculous. Making the claim that you're, you know, the opposite, whatever, you know, negative liberal trope there is, that it's ridiculous. And I, and people make these assumptions that those people are operating in bad faith. I'm not sure that's the case. I mm-hmm. think that a lot of times people are just so emotionally activated that they really don't read the words on the page or the words on the screen as they're written. They're really reading their own emotions and their interpretations. 
And if they were not emotionally activated and they saw those words, they would probably read them differently. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can see this happen all the time with statements that people make that are read online and then, and then the kinds of um, you know, horrible statements that people make about those articles or about their statements or whatever, you know. Yeah. I saw something in one of your posts on uh, psychology today where you, I think you said we didn't, something along the lines of we didn't need the coronavirus to make us contagious. We're already doing that in social media. Yeah. Social media makes us all contagious. In Mm -hmm. fact, we're all contagious all the time anyway. I mean, this is something that Nicholas Christakis and um, his co-author in his book uh, Connected, um, Fowler, they, they wrote about, I highly recommend this book. This is one of my all-time favorite books, Connected, The Power of Social Networks, I think is the subtitle, or The Surprising Power, maybe, of Social Networks. Um, but they talk about things as, as um, mundane as um, giggling and how contagious giggling is, um, but also mass psychogenic uh, illnesses, in other words, mass hysteria which is, I think, a little bit of what we see on social media, where people almost feel like, I think people may really feel like they're being harmed in some way when they make these claims. I don't think that everybody is just being hyperbolic. Um, I think people may genuinely feel injured. And, And that, I think, is partly a function of the rhetoric that everybody has been using about the harm of words that then uh, prompts people to experience harm in a way that is not, um, we would not have experienced words this way 10 years ago. Um, And so I, you know, I I think also giving people the benefit of the doubt is a very important habit of mind. And so this is, these are the things that I'm seeing where people are not giving others the benefit of the doubt. They're assuming that they're just, you know, using inflated rhetoric or that they're um, arguing in bad faith. But I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think that people really do feel these things. um, And some of it is because they've been encouraged to, and some of it is because they're emotionally activated when they read things. And, And if we give them the benefit of the doubt, we can interact with them in ways that sort of talk them off the ledge too. And you know what? There are times when we need to be talked off the ledge. None of us is perfect at this. No, for sure. For sure. Actually, that's, it seems to me the best reason to have people thinking about how to critically disagree with you because you're not always going to be right. And if, if that's the case, you need somebody to kind of get in your face and say, hey, maybe rethink this. Um, so I imagine you were worried about this in terms of social media and a variety of other things already, you know, before 2020. And now 2020 comes along and here, you know, in three or four months into the year, we're facing the global pandemic of coronavirus or COVID-19. How does that change what you see and the concerns that you have about developing these habits of a free mind? That's a great question. That's a great question. The, the biggest concern that I have is that our focus on viral contagion, I think, prompts us to sort of unconsciously be more concerned about moral pollution. Interesting. Um, moral contagion. So 
where we're constantly hand washing and and uh, being worried about touching things that might have the virus on it or being in places where we might come in contact with the virus, it just gives us this sense of not just fear and danger, but also the concept of contagion, which is easily transmitted into the moral realm. The, the whole way that we operate with taboos, it, that all has to do with the same, exactly the same kinds of principles as viral or bacterial contagion. So if somebody breaks a taboo, they're polluted and they need to be purified. <clears throat> if you think about, for example, decades ago, when what, what mothers, what parents used to do when children would say a bad word, right? They would wash, wash their mouth, mouth out with soap, soap yeah. right? So now that's where you can see the nexus of the physical contagion <laughs> world and the moral contagion world, right? There had to be a ritual of purification and then that child was restored to a, moral, a morally pure state. Well, what's happening now is this focus on moral purity in the sort of political realm so that people are considered polluted if they don't adhere strongly enough or stringently enough to a set of principles that are you know, either on the right or on the left. And you can see this in, in both on, in both camps. Right now we're seeing it sort of more um, uh, online. We see it more uh, right now on the, on the left where uh, with the protests for black lives and for police um, re reorganization and defunding and you know, all these calls for, um, for social and racial justice um, which are laudable and things that are long overdue. Um, at the same time, there's a, a requirement to adhere to a set of ideological principles rather than practical or pragmatic principles that is getting people fired from jobs, mm -hmm. um, humiliated online, um, you know, all of them. That's what that Harper's letter was sort of um, referring to. And I think that the, the pandemic really has um, created this intensification of the urge or urgency to have a, mu a moral purification. Um, and so that's something that we just have to be aware of in ourselves. We have to have a, a, a much higher level of self-awareness than we've ever needed in operating in our daily lives. Also because, because of the... Um, the lockdowns and how we've been separated from each other yeah. for so long. We're, we're now becoming in a way less human ourselves. We're not accustomed to and not really built for being so socially isolated. Yeah. And it, it really does something to the psyche, including, I think, in some ways, making us forget what it means to be human and making us forget that those other people that are now only sort of political abstractions online are actually human beings who are just as concerned about, you know, the welfare of other people as we are and who are, we may disagree with them, but they're also people with feelings and jobs and families to feed and, you know, the same concerns that we have. It's, it's really very bad for us to, to be so socially disconnected the ways in which we aren't charitable to one another in terms of points of view and we dehumanize one another. It's like this flattening, right? Somebody is just their point of view. They're not this more 
well-rounded creature that has feelings and hopes and aspirations and all that. That's already a challenge we face, but now because of the pandemic and and going along with the fact that we're constantly, as you say, washing our hands, worrying about whether other people are carrying germs that we're gonna, you know, get. Um, it it squashes us down even more. And when our communication is all via Zoom right. or chat, it takes some of the, again, the roundness of us off. Like we're not, we don't have to engage in those little polite things. Um, we don't we don't temper what we're saying because we're frustrated, we're fatigued, but also we're using a form of communication that doesn't lend itself to the kind of social connection or, or even physical connection that you're talking about. And we don't have the benefit of all those um, intuitive and yeah. physical things that happen when we're in the presence of another human person. You know, there's just, there's something that happens to our skin when we're in the presence of another person and, and the temperature of the room changes and, you know, they're just all kinds of nonverbal and, um, uh, and, and things that, that we react to under the level of our consciousness um, that we're robbed of. And that's part of the human experience. Um, but also the, the tendency to flatten the ways in which we think about other people, um, it, it, it's, it's heightened too by the fact that these conversations are becoming increasingly um, polarized. You know, we're pulling apart from each other, not just physically, but ideologically. And the more we separate into our camps, the less capable we become of, of seeing the people on the other side as close to us. You know, so this, this physical distance is also creating a, a sort of mental and emotional distance so that we, we sort of caric caricaturize yeah. The, the people who disagree with us and we assume that they are just like the most extreme adherents of any view that they have. And then <clears throat> there's this guilt by association kind of uh, moral pollution problem where that's where we get this terminology of adjacency, mm. right? You know, the people on the alt-right as, um, I don't know exactly when that terminology happened or who coined it, but you know, the alt-right is, I think, defined by a, a real sort of racism and, and um, white supremacy. Yeah, like anti-immigration, all right. that, yeah. And, and I mean, literally, I think, avowedly that way. Um, and unfortunately, we still don't have the maturity as a species, I think, to grasp that sometimes you will agree with people who are bad people. Mm. You know, sometimes you will have an idea that they also have, and it doesn't mean that the idea is bad because a bad person has it. You know, it's the idea is polluted by being thought about and adhered to by a bad person. Yeah. And then if you think about that idea in a positive way, you become polluted by your adjacency to that bad person. And so th that's a, a thing that we need to really be, we need to grapple with the, this, this sort of unpleasant but fundamental idea that bad people are not always wrong and good people are not always right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's to say it like that, you think, well, of course, but 
you really have to think about that because that's, we don't operate in our lives as if we know that. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, going back to that flattening, I think part of it is is because we would like things to be either or. We would like them to be black or white. We want to fit them into boxes because it's easier on our brains to think of things that way, right? All of these things go together. I don't have to worry about the gray area in between. Um, And it's inconceivable to me that somebody who holds views that I find reprehensible could, we could be the same in any way. That's right. Right. And that's that same concept that, that we, it's inconceivable because it's morally polluting. You don't want to touch anything that, that somebody you find abhorrent has touched, including an idea or a thought or a belief. So, you know, that's, that's why we, people so, so easily go to the extreme when somebody says something in defense of freedom of speech, for example, which is a principle that has throughout the history of our country been one that's been most useful for the powerless. Yeah. And, and if you think about, you know, the powerful people don't really need freedom of speech because they're the ones in power who can say anything they want. And the majority has the vote. So it's the minority and the powerless that benefit from freedom of speech. And yet, because some people who have very abhorrent ideas take advantage of that freedom that we all share, even the idea of freedom of speech can become polluted because it's been touched by people who say bad things and have bad ideas. So that's the kind of thing that we need to really focus. And I mean, this is a habit of mind that's hard. That's, this is that kind of critical thinking and, um, and the ability to discern the difference between a principle and the uh, people that you are, or a right and the people that use it. So defending freedom of speech is not defending the speech that people use. And that's the, uh, you know, the, the tricky difference for people. I wonder when we think about the events of 2020 up to this point, you know, we've talked a little bit about the coronavirus and about how that affects this idea of, of having a kind of moral purity as well as physical purity. When, and you've already alluded to protesting and racial justice issues. As you were describing the kind of habits we want to achieve, I mean, I wonder whether this is a place where, when we think about racial justice, this is a place where this is an a perfect example of where we need to bring those habits to bear. And that is that if we have, um, we have prejudices against views we don't like, it's, it's equally possible that we have prejudices against, you know, people. We have prejudices against ways of life, all kinds of different things that we have prejudices against. We're not going to get rid of those, but that the, the approach we need to use in light of that is to be especially thoughtful about how we see other people. Um, and I wonder if that's for, for the people who are struggling with, I don't know how to respond to what's yeah. going on. Yeah. I do care about justice. What do I do? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean that's extremely tricky right now. Um, and because of this moral purification uh, that we're experiencing right now, people who try to say the right thing and don't say it exactly right, they get one word wrong or they, 
um, or they don't say enough, or, I mean, you see what just happened to Lin-Manuel, um, yeah, you know, Hamilton. This, yeah. about Hamilton that, and also that, that he, he didn't speak out quickly enough or say the right things, or, I mean, this is somebody who clearly cares. Um, and we're now in this, this sort of moment, uh, this political moment of intentions don't matter. And, and that's the thing that is, that's what makes things so tricky, that there's this performative aspect of the morality play that, uh, especially on social media, it has to be done exactly right. The ritual has to be done exactly right. And if you get one aspect of it wrong, then you're morally tainted. That's where, I, I mean, I have such compassion, I'm sure this will happen to me too, um, but I have such compassion for people who find themselves in that situation because it really only happens to people who care. Yeah. Right. If people right. who don't care, they can say any darn thing they want and, and just walk away from it. People attack them. And what do they care? Because yeah. they don't care what those people think of them. Yeah. But the people who care the most are the ones who get attacked the most. And that's why they're also subject to this, this sort of pernicious idea that, they're fundamentally um, evil sort of through and through, you know, just by virtue of their identity or the, um, their background or the history of whiteness or, you know, whatever. Now there are concepts about the history of whiteness that are so important, that are so necessary for us to understand, grapple with and undo but the language around it is so polarizing and so um, uncommunicative mm -hmm. that it, it pushes people in, in very different directions. Um, and there, the perniciousness of it is on both sides. On the one hand, it can get people to believe that they will never be pure, mm -hmm. they will never be morally purified, and that they need to supplicate themselves forever in order to make up for the sins of the fathers you know and yep. that is that's not helpful to say the least and then it's there's also the the opposite side which is to deny that there's any legitimacy to the concerns of structural racism or the idea of whiteness which is a hard concept to grasp because of the way because it's called whiteness which i and i wish it was called something else because i think that if there's a different term for it people would be able to understand it better um, but but it sort of ma it it um maximizes the tendency to to retreat into i into identity groups mm -hmm. which unfortunately also increases the tendency to create a white identity group whether your goal is to, you know, defend racism or defeat it, having a white identity group is, has become this, this sort of plan. And it, it, that is another way of sort of flattening mm -hmm. um, the humanity of people, the, turning something that's very complex into something that's very two-dimensional. And when you talked earlier about the importance of thinking about those closest to you and the ways that you think about those closest to you and applying it to people further away. I think the things you've just described, it makes the stakes so high. And I don't, I don't for a minute mean to suggest 
that the stakes in terms of racial justice and racial equality are not high. They're clearly very high. There's no question about that. But if in day-to-day life, trying to navigate how to, to care for others, how to be more open-minded or increase the number of habits you have as a free mind, if the stakes are, if you get it wrong, that's it. You're done for, you're yeah. irredeemable. Yeah. Then it makes it, it makes, I think, us more likely to not try, or as you say, to sort of um, revert to the things that are comfortable for us, um, or to just hide a little bit, right, from even having to engage that. Yeah, and it, it definitely, I think, increases the tendency to stay silent. Mm-hmm. Because if you know that you could, if you know that you risk saying something you know, in not exactly the right way and that the penalties for that are extremely high, you might as well just stay silent. And, uh, and then on the flip side, if you have any sort of disagreement, you might as well stay silent too. Yeah. You know, because if you care about these issues, disagreeing about any of it is not, um, it doesn't seem worth it to a lot of people. Um, even to sign on to something that seems like a very uncontroversial statement, you know, like the freedom of speech or, mm-hmm. you know, that, that dissent and disagreement is important, that can also get backlash. Um, and so it, it increasingly encourages people to not only um, not share their views, but to even pretend to agree with things that they don't agree with out of self-preservation. And then that gives people, this is a concept called um, preference falsification, where people falsely um, purport to prefer certain ideas. Um, And that leads to people around them thinking that everybody except me agrees with this thing. And so they might as well go along with it too. And it, it takes the, the, the habit of mind of courage for people to be willing to say the thing that is not in their immediate self-interest. Mm-hmm. And they might get canceled over it. They might lose their job over it. They might not, in, in, I'm talking about in unfair ways. Mm-hmm. They, they might by disagreeing with the, with the preferred narrative, there might be real ramifications. And at least of which I would imagine too, is wandering around having to pretend you believe something or act as if you believe something or convince yourself you believe something when you don't, right? That has to have consequences internally. Yeah, that's a very good point. And that's a point that most people don't even think about is what it does to you as an individual human being and, a, and as a thinker to have to suppress yourself, to not be fully expressed, to not have the, uh, to not trust that you can say even things that should not be controversial without having severe negative ramifications um, as consequences. So that's for, for sure, it does, it does have some negative psychological effects. And I think people are becoming you know, very anxious and depressed over not worrying all the time if they're going to say something wrong. Um, but the, 
the thing that I don't think most people even consider is that that um, envi- creating that environment does more damage to the cause that it's trying to help because when people aren't, don't feel free to say the things that they think about a problem, about an issue, then we are all robbed of those ideas that could be helpful in solving that problem. So going back to the very beginning of our conversation, criminal justice reform is something that has been on the minds of people on the right and the left. And if we only want to hear from the most extreme ideas on the left, then we're not going to solve that problem. We have to also be able to listen to the whole range of ideas for how to solve that problem, some of which we will find upsetting, but we have to listen to them and that will either change our minds about how to go about things or it will give us ideas for how to sharpen our arguments so that we can persuade more people that our ideas are the right ones. We absolutely have to know what the best arguments are on the other side in order to make the best arguments on our side. Mm -hmm. Something that has increasingly been called steel manning an idea. And instead of, instead of always knocking down a straw man, man, you know, try, try to create a steel man and see if you can fight that one. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a very, very useful term. Um, I don't know who, who came up with it, but I will credit them as soon as I find out. Um, Yeah. Uh, There's an area where I think this is especially important to think about, and I want to make sure we do talk about it because I know it's very important to you and to the research that you do. Uh, And that's in higher education, in the university. A place where some years ago when the American Association of University Professors had their 100th anniversary, I had cause to go through like their, their original papers and they talk about the importance of protecting ideas that are kind of on the fringes. Those weren't the words they use, but words they did use in these documents had to do with the university should be like a hothouse or a conservatory for growing um, ideas. Some of them are going to be discarded and some of them are going to actually change the world. And we have to have a place where it's possible to have that kind of experimentation and everything else. And I know your work looks at that. You're in a university seeing students. There's good reason to be concerned about what's happening in universities, right? That it's not living up to that expectation. Yeah. The moral purification of the university is a very, very big problem. And it's what's not um, communicated by the professors and administrators enough, and it doesn't seem to be well understood by the students, is that um, part of having an intellectual life requires being wrong, especially in the academy and especially in the sciences. So if you think about what the, the project of science is, it is to discover things that are true. And in order to do that, you make hypotheses. And I can tell you the majority of the hypotheses in my doctoral dissertation were wrong. But if I wasn't allowed to make those guesses to do that research, I wouldn't have found out that they were wrong. If I had started with the assumption that they were wrong, I would never have been able to prove that they were wrong. I started with the assumption that they were right. And then I did the research to test it. 
and I found out that most of them were wrong. Now, these were not things that had, you know, huge ramifications in the political, you know, realm or anything. I, but that mm-hmm. wasn't what I was looking at. But, but that's just an example of how the sciences are supposed to be a place where you are wrong from time to time. You have to be wrong. You have to find out that you're wrong in order to find out where you're right. And part of the project of a university is to provide what's called institutional disconfirmation. So that if I have an idea and I'm doing research to see if this idea is right and somebody else is doing research on something similar and their research indicates that I'm wrong, then I have the benefit of their thinking and telling me, here's where I think you're wrong about this. And this is, and so then I can say, ah, I see, I need to have, I need to sort of adjust my thinking about this and attack this question in a different way. And, and then I can get back on track in a way that's going to get me closer to finding out the truth. The, the other thing to think about is as, as the university and as journalism have been talking more in terms of justice and um, a concept of truth that has to do with a sort of moral truth as mm-hmm. opposed to empirical truth or facts mm-hmm. is that the project of an education and the purpose of an intellectual life is a search for truth. It's the search. And the, the problem we have today is that too often people are expected to have the truth mm-hmm. already. And especially problematic is when students are expected to have that truth when they arrive at college. Well, what's yeah. the point of the four years that they spend there if they have already fully developed morally and intellectually and they already know everything? I mean, yeah. you see this in the ways in which students now feel um, not just free, but almost an obligation to school their professors. It, that, that they don't really think that they have anything to learn from a professor who doesn't agree with what they already think. Yeah. Well, and in order to learn, you have to be deficient in some kind of knowledge. That sounds pejorative and I don't mean it to be, but yeah, but that's exactly right. You have if to you think you know, something. yeah, if you think you know everything, you're not going to learn any, anything. So um, a university and a liberal education is exactly the place to be able to be wrong, to, to acknowledge your shortcomings and say, I want to change that. I want to change, not necessarily just being wrong, but the, the limited knowledge I have about something. And in order to get that, I have to be given some free reign to try different things and different ideas. So do you think, I don't know, I mean, this is maybe unfair to put the two things together, but do you think that because it's true that universities have become less open to lots of different opinions or, um, you know, more of the it's us versus them kind of thing, that then translates into what we see in culture outside of it. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Um, Yeah. I mean, a number of years ago, people were talking about these problems on campus, but they hadn't yet jumped the campus gate. And now we see them in journalism, in tech, in literature, um, you know, in all kinds of media, these same problems are, are now 
coming out of the university, some of that has to do with students who become employees at these organizations who take those tools that they've learned of, of denouncement and demanding. I mean, these are not things that my generation, I mean, I'm going to sound like so old, these kids, you know, kids today, right. they, um, and that's not what I mean, but um, what I mean is that our understanding of um, what we were going to college for was different and in some ways not in a great way. You know, I myself was much more willing to just accept that I was sort of an empty vessel and the professors had all the knowledge and I was supposed to fill myself with it. And I was much less critical than I could have been when I was in college about what I learned. So there's, there's a positive aspect to students coming in with a level of, of uh, you know, skepticism. Mm. Um, but there, it's not matched by a level of respect for education and experience. And I think that those two things really need to go hand in hand in order for that skepticism to be useful. Um, if the skepticism is a result of thinking you already have the truth rather than a kind of critical thinking, then it's not useful. Mm -hmm. um, and the other thing that happens is that this, this thing, this, this moment, this four years of residential time on a college campus, it really used to be very much like, uh, almost like a vision quest. You know, it was a, almost like your, um, your acceptance to college was like the call. Mm. And, and then you arrive on campus and the four years is like that period of liminality where you don't know who you are. You're not quite an adult. You're not quite a child. You're not the person you're going to be, but you're not the person you were either. And, and it had this sort of ritual quality to it where you weren't supposed to know who you were and you weren't supposed to know everything you weren't supposed to have your moral character all developed yet. You were supposed to be able to make mistakes mm. and be wrong. And of course, that was before social media. Oh. And now every mistake is documented of, forever. And, and documented and, and sort of uh, set in concrete, you know, so that it's, I, I worry that it's very hard for students to become something different than when they arrive because they have to defend whoever that was yeah. in some way yeah. or, it, or if they were wrong, they have to just disavow, you know, that there's no sense of, of personal growth and development. Once you have been found out, even if the thing that you did was when you were 16, it's as yeah. if that 16 year old self is you. And you are now accountable as your, you know, 22 year old self yeah. who has now had all of these different experiences and a college education, you're accountable for what your 16 year old self said as if that's who you are now. And so that, that sort of essentializing of an identity happens in a, in a lot of ways that that sense of self not being flexible. And, and that's a big concern. That's, that's a real loss and it's a loss from a standpoint of self-development and it's a, a loss because that kind of ritual aspect of college is an important rite of passage and that rite of passage being lost i think it it robs each and every student of that 
that transformation that you leave after graduation a new person as opposed to a more hardened version of your 16 year old self or your 18 year old self. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the expectation to arrive on campus with all of that handled is really destructive. It's really destructive. And And it's a lot of pressure for somebody at 18 to have everything figured out. It is. And now imagine that they arrive on campus at 18, knowing what the penalties are for saying the wrong thing. Hmm. It Hmm. takes way too much courage to be willing to be wrong on college campuses. And that's part of where this campus ethos is, is so damaging now. Um, and, and some of it also has to do with how we even think about what a self is. Because in order to have a, um, a, an attitude toward people where you give them the benefit of the doubt, in order to use the principle of charity, you have to see that person as an individual, unique human being. And the idea of seeing people that way is also now considered problematic by some of the sort of ideological uh, campus norms. And and so so there's all this pressure on campus. And then once they leave campus, once students graduate, to adhere to a set of, of illiberal principles that really impede the liberal project, that really impede the Um, ability to have a liberal pluralist democracy because the pluralism is really is not valued and neither is the liberalism actually so if people want to read more about what you're doing your research i know psychology today you have a blog there that they can read yeah so if that's at psychologytodayblog.com that takes you directly to my my area of the psychology today blog and I know you're very active on Twitter. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> Maybe a little too active on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. It was so good to talk to you. Really, it's great it's to talk to you. Amazing stuff. And and I think it will be very, very welcome with our audience who I think are are trying to navigate a lot of these things. Uh, and the difficulty of navigating these things, again, when the cost is so high that you're going to get canceled or that you know, you're on the wrong side is really significant. It is. And one of the things that I should have said, and maybe you can, okay, you can still say in somewhere is that um, it's, we're at a point right now where CEOs and uh, business owners and people in positions of authority in the business world. And of course, in academia have a unique opportunity to set the tone that, so if, if a head of a company says, if you have a problem with someone else that you work with, the first step is to try to work it out with them. That's just something that is not happening anymore. Um, From what I hear, people are going straight to HR or even creating an internal outrage mob as we saw at the New York Times. You know, publicly shaming people, et cetera. And another thing would be to say that, you know, at this company or in this institution, public um, attempts to humiliate someone else inside this institution are not welcome Mm -hmm. and violate our social media policy. Um, Now, that may be going a little too far. I don't know. I'm not a lawyer as far as 
um, you know, what companies can uh, do. And certainly uh, on, um, uh, for public, for people at universities, they, pe professors have the freedom to do whatever they like on social media. Yeah. Um, so to say that it violates a policy is going too far for them. But, uh, but at least to say that it's not, um, th that's not our preferred method of communicating a complaint. Yeah. Yeah. You know? No. I mean, I would, I would think even in the way that you describe these habits of a free mind and the kinds of things you need to develop, as opposed to having, I mean, we're so used to having lists of things we can't do and we shouldn't do and things that are precluded and things that you have to worry about liability and risk and all that. Not that those things aren't important, but to have positive things you could do to try and minimize that kind of conflict or not even minimize it, I guess, but to, to make it more productive. Yeah. And I think one of the things that is a, a very simple, though not easy, um, uh, a, a sort of um, practice is to not be a jerk on social media. Yeah. <laughs> it's just good advice. <laughs> easy to, you know, if you, if you're, a t if, if you're thinking of using a, you know, calling someone a name or saying something unkind or overly snarky. I mean, I'm, I'm all for a little bit of snark now, mm -hmm. and then, you know, and humor really needs to be appreciated. Um, but if it, if it gets to the point where you think, you know, could somebody interpret this as me being unkind to somebody? Well, that's probably where the line is. You know, if we, if, if we just make a practice of being kind on social media and avoiding joining any, you know, outrage mobs, yeah. then I think we, we make it and actually quite a big difference because we will affect the people that, that other people see. Um, we will affect the people who see us. Yeah. We will affect the people who see them and the people who see them. And so these kinds of behaviors have a, a ripple effect. The work that Nicholas Christakis and, and uh, his co-author Fowler did on this in their book, my recollection is that a lot of things have a measurable effect at three degrees of separation. Mm. Generally speaking, a 15% change at one degree, a 10% change at two degrees, and a 6% change at three degrees. I'm, prob I'm probably saying that wrong. Um, but like the chance of, of, of a behavior being picked up, I think, is that um, is at that level. So, and that's something everybody can do. Everybody can do that. Just yeah. be kind on social media and be kind in life. You know, just if you remember that the people who you're irritated with are human beings, whether that's on social media or at the grocery store, you know, especially right now when everybody is really frayed, uh, you know, frayed around the edges, I guess. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> way to put it. Um, you know, those even small kindnesses make a very big difference. In the days since we recorded this episode, I keep returning to all the great practical advice that Pamela offered. Just the other day, I had a conversation with someone who I care a great deal about, and we were definitely on two different sides of an issue. 
And instead of doing what I think I'd normally do, and actually thanks to Pamela, I now recognize that I'm naturally inclined to do this. I mean, I think normally I would just stop listening or I would think, you know what, this person's really misinformed on the issue and I don't have to pay attention. But I remembered Pamela's advice. First, I tried to remember that this person isn't evil. He's not. Or that he's insane. He's not. Or that he's unintelligent. He's not. I asked myself, since this person is like me, and I know this is someone who actually wants the world to be a better place and who wants good for other people, how do you get to this conclusion? I tried to do what Pamela said, which is to be curious about how he got to that conclusion. And probably most importantly, I stopped talking and I listened. And I really did learn a lot from that. I would not say I'm totally confident that the next time I see a nasty comment on social media, I'm going to be able to go through all of that and like come to the right place for a productive disagreement. But I'm certainly going to try. And I hope you will too. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Civil Squared Podcast, where we explore civil discourse and the free exchange of ideas. We'll see you next time for another conversation.